Good morning. Our Bible reading this morning is taken from 1 Samuel and reading chapter 5. After the Philistines had captured the Ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the Ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face in the gr- on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and put him back in his place. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body remained. And that is why to this day neither the priests of Dagon nor any of the others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashbod step onto the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumours. When the people of Ashdod saw what was happening, they said, The ark of the God of the Israel, Israel must not stay here with us, because his hand is heavy on us, and Dagon is our God. And so they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and asked them, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, Have the ark of the God of Israel moved to Gath? So they moved the ark of the God of Israel. But after they had moved it, the Lord's hand was against that city, throwing it into a great panic. He afflicted the people of the city, both young and old, with an outbreak of tumours. And so they sent the ark to God to Ekron. As the ark of God was entering Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to kill us and our people. And so they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, Send the ark of the God of Israel away. Let it go back to its own place, or it will kill us and our people. For death had filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. Those who did not die were afflicted with tumours, and the outcry of the city went up to heaven. Amen. Thank you, Alan. Hope you enjoyed Alan as much as you did that uh, little video that we showed this morning. That's from the Bible Project. And uh, I just want to let you know that that's the sort of resource that are available to all of us now as part of Victory Anglican Church with our Right Now Media. So if you don't know what that means, send us an email at connect at my fact because that's something that uh, we've made available. It's like a library for all of us to have great resource to continue to jump into the Bible and help one another learn the great things that God has for us in his word. Now, we're in this series called Called to Follow. It's on 1 Samuel. You may have noticed if the video didn't give that away. And we've been seeing this concept of following God. And as Steve spoke to us last week, one of the things we learned about following God is this beautiful posture that Samuel taught us of speak, Lord, your servant is listening to hear God's word in order that we might be led by the God who we follow. This morning, as we continue in 1 Samuel, I'm only looking around uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6, I want to ask a question and hopefully provide some insight to it that is really basic, but I think is worth exploring. This God we're following, this God that we also hear about his glory, we often sing and speak about glorifying God, what does it mean? What does it mean to glorify God? What do you reckon it looks like? How do you do it? Can I do it better than you? Can you do it better than me? Don't answer. 
What does this sort of thing mean? Well, this morning as we jump into these chapters, here's what I hope that we might see. I think what I've learned from chapters 4, 5, and 6 is that we glorify God when we seek His leading, when we are humbled before Him, and we acknowledge that there is no other way for His glory covers the whole earth. To try and show you what I believe I've seen in God's Word, I want to take you to three episodes. Three episodes involving the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Now, what is the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord? Well, it started its days as a box. It's a timber box that's covered in gold. And let me be really clear, it's not God. It's not God. But what God, who dwells in heaven, said to his people, because the beautiful thing about God, who is infinite and eternal, he does something that we, we, we sort of insult each other by saying this, but this is wonderful when God does it. He condescends. That is, he comes down. Like those of you who are parents, when you speak to your children, you get down on a knee and you might speak to them in language that is simpler than the language that you might speak to your peers in. As we are not eternal, as we are not divine, God also comes down and he speaks to us. And so one of the wonderful things that God did for his people, God who is eternal and dwells in heaven, he said, build this box, cover it in gold, it's going to be precious. Top the box is going to be two cherubim, angels, wings outstretched. And you will know that my presence dwells above this box, above the Ark of the Covenant. It's the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. It'll be in the center of your camp. This is where you'll be reminded that my presence dwells among you. Now remember, the box is not God. But it is a reminder that he is dwelling and that his presence is with his people. Now this box, this Ark of the Covenant, seems to be involved in three separate episodes that I read through uh, these chapters of 1 Samuel. Here are my episodes that I hope will help us. Episode 1, I dream of Jeannie. Episode 2, Weekend at Dagon's. Let the hearers understand. Episode 3, I'm a Philistine, get me out of here. Alright, let me share my episodes with you. Episode 1, I Dream of Jeannie, is derived from 1 Samuel chapter 4, which our video gave us an overview of. Israel, Israel getting a fight with the Philistines. Who are the Philistines? Well, Israel have been brought into this land of Canaan, and God has instructed them to subdue the land, to take over the land. Well, living in the land are Canaanites, and one of the tribes of the Canaanites are the Philistines. And you will see throughout 1 Samuel, there's going to be argy-bargy between God's people Israel and the Philistines. Well, a war breaks out, and they fight with the Philistines, and they lose. God's people Israel fight with the Philistines, and they lose. They get their butts kicked. Now, they ask a good question. Why did we lose? Here's how they ask the question. It's right there in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 3 on the screen for you. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? It's a good question that they asked. Do you note how they asked the question? Just like Hannah, who we met a few weeks ago, who... The text said twice, the Lord closed her womb. The Israelite soldiers acknowledge 
The elders acknowledged the power of God. Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? And so how come the Philistines are so much tougher than us? They, who also understand Hannah's prayer about God's power, say, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today? And it's almost like, and the Philistines happened to turn up. Why did the Lord do this? See, there's something that they are very clear about, these people of Israel. And to their credit, they are very clear on God's power. They are very clear that God opens and closes wombs, that God wins and causes uh, wars to be lost. So they go on. God did this. What do they say next? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us, because he's powerful, right? And save us from the hand of our enemies. Whilst they're very clear on the power of God, I'm going to show you right now that there's something that they're very unclear on. They're unclear on the glory of God. You see, prior to all of this, in a previous episode, but not a unique episode in the life of the Ark of the Covenant, in Joshua 3.11, we read, and it's on the screen for you now, see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. This is said to the people of Israel. When they're taking this land that they're now fighting over, it's the ark that leads them in. Here is what I'm trying to say to you. The big problem is Israel picked a fight. They lost the fight. They wanted God's power. So Israel brought out the ark. The trouble is it's the ark that's meant to bring out Israel. Do you see the difference? Israel said, we need power. Bring out the ark. They knew God is powerful and the ark, the symbol of his presence. Bring it out. They forgot God's glory. It's not you that trots out God, Israel. It's God who trots out you. You don't lead the Lord. The Lord leads you. Why do I call this I dream of genie? Because the Lord Almighty, and in 1 Samuel chapter 4, this Ark of the Covenant is described as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty. The Lord Almighty is reduced to the genie in the gold box. Israel brought out the Ark, but it's always been God's plan that the Ark would bring out Israel. And the Lord Almighty is reduced to the genie in the gold box. And the story continues with defeat. They lost badly the first time. As they go back to fight with the Philistines, they lose monumentally badly with many, many, many tens of thousands of lives lost. The ark itself is captured by the Philistines. You might remember Hophni and Phinehas, the two evil priests, the sons of Eli. They're killed in the battle. And when a runner comes back to report all of this, Eli, the priest that we met, the pseudo leader of Israel, falls off his chair. He's an old heavy man, breaks his neck and dies. The tragedy's not over because one of Eli's sons, Phinehas, his wife is with child. 
she goes into what seems a, 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 perhaps an early labor. The stress induces her labor. Her labor pains tragically get the better of her. And she dies giving birth to a child. But not before naming the child Ichabod. Which means the glory has departed from Israel. Or where is the glory? The thing is, this woman may have spoken better than she knows. I suspect when she named the boy Ichabod, she was thinking, well look, the ark is captured, so there goes God's power. My husband's dead, his brother's dead, their dad's dead, the priesthood's dead. It's all over. It's all over. The glory has departed. I think she speaks better than she knows. I think she speaks somewhat prophetically. That is, she makes a declaration over the state of Israel's spiritual welfare where she describes that that's exactly what's happened. Israel has had a fine concept of the power of God, but the concept that God is glorious, that the ark brings out Israel rather than Israel brings out, of the, brings out the ark, that's departed. God's people have no longer observed that God is glorious, that God leads, that God reigns, that God is the Lord Almighty, for they have reduced the Lord Almighty to the genie in the gold box. And when your God is a genie in a box or wherever else you contain him, his glory has departed. You see, in episode one, we already learn a significant lesson about what it is to glorify God. When your God is your genie, his power is subject to your will. That sounds crazy just to say, but it's a real thing that happened here in history. It's a thing that happens and has happened in my life. And I suspect it's a thing that can happen for you too. When your God is just your genie in the bottle, his power is subjected to your will. And we say, piously, the power is yours, Lord. But the glory is mine. And we call upon the Almighty to glorify us. To use his power to serve our will that our ways might prosper and that our name might be praised. But we glorify God when rather than us bringing him out, we ask, Lord, where would you lead me? Will you bring me out? We glorify God when we follow, when we seek his will, not just his power. And so at this point, I sort of go, whoa, some of my prayers, earnest as they are, I might need to take a little step back in my prayer and approach to God. Because for so many times I come to God, the powerful one, and I treat him like the ark that I'm going to drag out, almost like I connect my little lead up to, dog, up to God's collar. Come on, boy. Come and serve my needs. It sounds, it sounds rude to say, but it gets a little bit like that when I, when I forget the glory of God. And so I ask that he would bless my plans rather than asking him what should my plans be. I ask that his power might be in alignment with my will rather than trying to discern that my heart and my will might be in alignment with his. Can I give you some examples? These are prayers I've prayed for myself and for others. 
and prayers you might have prayed for yourself and for others. Those prayers we pray when we hear from a friend, oh, we put an offer on a home. Pray that it gets accepted. Nothing wrong with that prayer. But was it preceded by, Lord God, is your will that we should be property owners? Lord God, how would you have us use our money and our finances to your glory? Lord God, where would you have us live? Lord God, does this work with your other plans for our life? But we jump into the, got a plan, make it happen. Bring out the box. Those prayers we pray about careers and jobs. When for an interview, pray that I get it. Nothing wrong with that prayer. Proceed it with a Lord God, how would you like me to use my time, my talent, my treasure? What is your will for my life? We don't use the language of vocation so much anymore. Vocation means calling. To seek what is his calling. Now that doesn't, this is not the ministry, this is not the ministry picture I go and say, how many of you have thought you should actually be in Bible college so we can get a better minister than me up here? That's what I'm saying. You can collect garbage to the glory of God. And you can do ministry to the glory of yourself. But take a step back and let's ask God, what would you have for me? And Lord God, would you bless what you have for me? When we pray about our healings, Lord, what would you want of my life? How many years would you want for me? When we pray about how many events have I been a part of at church? Have I been responsible for? Pray for good weather. Nothing wrong with that. He owns the storehouses laden with snow. Keep them closed. But how often, Lord God, is this how you would like us to use our time, talent, treasure, resource? Is this your plan? Lord God, we delight in when you say no as much as you say yes. Lord God, we pray that those borders will be open, that we can travel. It's our rights. You know, once upon a time, if you were going to travel overseas, first you'd work out, are you healthy enough to survive those many weeks at sea and the scurvy and the whatever else and who'll take care of your affairs and all these sorts of things? It was complicated. But now that it's easy, we assume it's our right. And how often do we ask of the Lord, Lord God, is it your will that I'll be away from my work? Is it, away, is it your will that I'll be away from my church, from my responsibilities, from this? Is this what you want for my life? But we get to the Lord God, make the planes fly and the borders be open. We glorify God when we follow, when the ark brings us out rather than we bring up the ark. Let us not dream of genie. Let us praise God instead. Episode two, weekend at Dagon's. Hanging out with the dead guy. See, Dagon's not alive. Dagon is a statue. So here's the story so far. We've been in battle. We've lost the battle. We bring out the ark. We lose the battle. They capture the ark. And the Philistines take the ark of the Lord Almighty, and they put it in the temple of Dagon. There's some different views on what exactly this means. My hunch is as they set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord beside, is the language here in chapter 5, beside Dagon, it's almost like setting up some kind of a divine sleepover. Right, so, so the Philistines, they worship Dagon, a fertility god. And there he is in his temple, And can you imagine, this is like twin turbocharging your car. Because not only do we have Dagon on the job for us, 
let's get Yahweh, the God of Israel. Now, the Philistines are clever. They, like the Israelites, understand something of the power of God. Because back in chapter 4, when they heard that the Ark of the Covenant was being brought out, they were terrified. They're like, uh-oh, they're bringing out their God, and he's the God who defeated Pharaoh and Egypt, and this is going to be bad. Everybody, get ready, fight your hardest, or we're done. And, and, and it was a good pep talk they won. So the Philistines, like the Israelites, bring in the Ark of the Covenant to sit next to Dagon because they, like the Israelites, have comprehended the great power of God and now they're a twin turbocharged double divine nation but like the Israelites they're very unclear on the glory of God and so once again someone's going to speak better than they know the speaker is Dagon now make no mistake Dagon is a false god and an idol and like every single world religion or philosophy that points in a direction other than Jesus as God and Lord Almighty, he is a manifestation of the lies of Satan, who seeks the destruction of all people and for them to be lost to hell forever. He's not a good guy, but he's going to speak better than he knows, despite being a dumb, without speech statue. So there's the Ark of the Covenant, set up for a divine sleepover with Dagon. Next morning, chapter 5, verse 3, you'll see it on the screen. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next morning, there was Dagon face down. He's face down. This demonstrates some really critical stuff for us. Dagon seems to have adopted the posture that many have adopted when encountering God or one of his holy servants. Face down before him. Dagon can't stand in the presence of God. The amazing thing here is Dagon really gets reduced to what he is. Because do you see what happens? Not only is he face down, but the people will now come in, oh, poor little Dagon, and they're going to pick him back up. They demonstrate something about Dagon exactly of what his nature is. He is a creation of a creature. He is not powerful to stand up. He is not powerful to do anything. He is of the made order. He is a cre he's not even a creature. He's a creation of a creature. And so they stand him back up. And Dagon here, in his first fall, demonstrates that he cannot stand next to the power of Yahweh. So they pop him back up. Everyone goes to sleep. Let's hope the sleepover goes better. Next morning, boom. Dagon is down again, and the poor bloke's gone to pieces. Thank you, thank you very much. That's all from me. Heads fallen off, hands have fallen off, their idol is ruined. And here's a beautiful statement about the glory of God. The power and the glory of God are revealed just so wonderfully for what happens with Dagon. Speaks better than he knows. Dagon falls apart ruined and undone and broken. The idol collapses. This is not the first or the last time that the glory of God would have significant effects on another. Some years later, a great guy, prophet of God, Isaiah, in chapter 6, was given a vision of what? The glory of God in his temple. And Isaiah 
in chapter 6, verse 5, and I apologise for not having it here for you. He exclaims. He doesn't exclaim, awesome, I saw God. His exclamation is, woe to me, I am ruined. Some of the older English translations use the language of, woe to me, I am undone. The glory of seeing God for me, a man of impurity and impurity, it's, it's, it's like melted the glue that holds me together and I crumble, I melt, I'm undone. In the presence of the creator, me as creation, I crumble. In the presence of his white hot glory, every imperfection, every mistake, every problem with me is laid bare and here I am unable to hold my own structural integrity. I fall apart before you. Is what Isaiah is exclaiming, is what Dagon is experiencing, is what Moses was warned of. Exodus 33, 19 to 23, Moses, who has been serving the Lord and getting to know the Lord, says, Lord, show me your glory. And God has a very serious warning for Moses. He says, no one can look at my face and live. There is a white hot glory about me that will melt you, that will bring you undone. Now, I'm a God who does want to reveal myself. So what God says to Moses is, I'm going to put you in a cave. I'll cover you over. I'll pass by. I'll even say my name, which is glorious. And you'll see the back of me, and that's going to blow your mind. Anything more would bring death. Weekend at Dagon's. This second episode teaches us something that we have to understand about God's glory. God's glory is not safe. God's glory is not a warm bath. God's glory is a white hot sun. God's glory is not safe. It shows alleged, alleged gods to be mere statues whether they are the ancient gods created by Philistines or the things that we prop up in our lives today that will give us hope, strength, courage, whatever. God's white-hot glory shows alleged gods to be just mere idols. It shows great people, great people, for the impurities that we all bear. And exposure to God's glory without cover brings death. God said it directly. Episode two has an important word for us in how we might approach, how we might bear with the God of power and glory. It tells you that you can't, and I can't either. Help is required. Sometimes the idea of this white-hot glory of God causes us, I guess, to be like the Philistines earlier in the passage and say, well, he's really, really strong, so do your best. The best we can do before the glory of God is what Isaiah did, to cry out, I am ruined. There are these great words that we often use in the, in the, in the words that prepare us for communion at the 8 a.m. service. They say something like this, as we, before we take bread, we say, we do not presume to come to your table, Lord, trusting in our own goodness, but in your manifold and great goodness. We are, not so, we are not so much as worthy to gather up the crumbs for under, from under your table. But we express that God is gracious and kind and has invited us.
See, sometimes the response of a human is almost to be like to gather all our resources like a Dagon saying, prop me up, prop me up, I'll have a go. But the best approach is to say, yes, I am ruined. The thing is, ruined as we are and imperfect as we are, what I haven't told you is God is not only powerful and glorious, he is gracious. And he sends his son Jesus for ruined people like me. For people who to look upon the face of God as I must do in judgment someday, Jesus dies my death. And so ruined I might be, but lost I am not. Because Jesus not only dies my death, he rises again. And because Jesus rose again as a promise of God, I'm not just ruined, I'm renewed. So I can cry out before God as I meet him in Jesus, I'm undone as my glue comes out and I, I'm lost. I die to Christ. But because of his resurrection, I am recreated by God new in Jesus. And because God has promised his Holy Spirit who sanctifies or cleans me and unites me with Christ, all of my days, as imperfect as they are, are covered and clothed. My life is hid in Christ, is the language of Colossians. And so now in the face of God's glory, I don't try to stand up to it. I say, I'm ruined. Jesus, save me. Jesus says, my pleasure. He covers me, renews me, and brings me into the glory of God. And he does it for anyone who would trust in him. The way to glorify God is not to try and shine back and sort of fit in the presence like you could have a divine sleepover. The way to glorify God is to humbly receive Christ and to be renewed, to be a disciple, to be a follower. Of him. Last episode. I'm a Philistine. Get me out of here. Perhaps this verse can perhaps this can be summed up in one verse, because what actually happens is after Dagon has a rough night or two rough nights with the Ark of the Covenant, the people come up with the strategy. I think they're starting to get it, folks. I think the Philistines right now have a stronger theology than the Israelites do. Because they've now understood the power of God and they're getting a hint on the glory of God. And they're like, Dagon can't deal with him. We can't deal with him. Every town we take him to gets tumors and problems and issues and all these sorts of things. So they say, so they called together all the rulers of the Philistines and said, send the ark of the God of Israel away. They've understood the power of God. They've understood the glory of God. Here's what they haven't understood, the magnitude of the glory of God. They think that just perhaps the glory of God might be a localized thing. So if we can just put a little bit of distance between us and that covenant box thing, we might be safe. Stay away. History and the pages of 1 and 2 Samuel recall that it's a strategy that does not work. They try to distance themselves from God, but God's hand will continue to be hard-pressed against the Philistines. They are under his wrath. What the Philistines have understood is he is powerful, he is glorious. What they haven't understood is that God's glory is not localized. God's glory covers the earth. There is no place to go where his glory is not. If I go to the depths, you are there. If I go to the mountaintops, 
you are there. There is no space to be where we don't have to, at some time, encounter God. The Philistine strategy didn't work for them, and for centuries it hasn't worked for many others. So often we think, gee, God, his power and his glory and all that stuff. Have you not heard the phrase, I would never step into a church? The roof would cave in. Somehow thinking the glory of God is localized to these odd-shaped buildings. But the glory of God covers the whole earth. And the truth is, at some time, everyone must encounter God in his power and his glory. It is not localized. And the truth is, even if you have met God in his power and his glory, every part of our being, he calls for us to surrender to him. God's glory is not localized. It covers the all earth. So everyone and their everything must be surrendered to him. He is the only way. And so friends, this morning I share with you and I close with these words. How do we glorify God? What will it look like? We glorify God when we seek his leading, when we are truly humbled before him and we acknowledge that there is no other way for his glory covers the whole earth. Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that in Him, in Him you have revealed your power, you have revealed your glory, you have revealed your love, you have revealed your very self. And so, Father God, as we learn these lessons of who you are and how you have dealt with your people, I pray that all of us who hear these words might surrender ourselves before Jesus truthfully declaring, I am ruined, I cannot stand, rescue me, Jesus. Lord God, we pray that Jesus would be our Lord, that he would lead us out rather than us want to lead him out. We pray that he might be our only hope of renewal, for we are ruined. And we pray, Lord, for ourselves, that all of us might be surrendered to him. And we pray for our world, that all the earth might know that you have installed him as your king. His glory covers the earth, and all come under him, that every knee will bow. And so, Lord God, we pray that according to your mercies, many knees might bow now and give honor and glory to the one king, the Lord Jesus, who is God to be glorified. In his name we pray. Amen.